My name's Andy. I teach creative writing and I write children's fiction under the pseudonym A.P. Winter. This week, as always, we're going to be looking at some simple questions on writing and seeing where they take us. The first question for this week is, how do we tell better stories? Let's start, appropriately enough, by telling a story. During a long shift at a bookshop, a customer asked me if we had a title called Escher's York. You mean like the artist Escher, I said. Yes, that's the one. It's got all these psychedelic drawings of York in it, and it has a really cool cover. You had it on display. I hadn't heard of any such book, but it sounded interesting, and even though it wasn't on our database, she was adamant that she remembered where she'd seen it. We spent a while searching the shelves for this strange, psychedelic book, when suddenly the customer's face dropped. Oh no, she said. It was a dream. I often find myself telling this story to new people, as my wife is painfully aware, for the simple reason that everyone seems to like it. But even I would admit that there isn't much to the story beyond the payoff of the customer's realisation. So why does it work? Let's start by discussing how not to tell the story. I could start by saying, I once served a customer who dreamt they'd seen a book, which actually we didn't have. Then wait for someone to say, Really? And then proceed to tell them the story. Yes, they came in and asked for Asher's York, and so on. Why is this bad? Well, because for there to be any payoff, I need the listener to know that the story is heading towards something, but not know what that something might be. I need them to ask the question, why? We have a few clues that something is up in the story. They're asking for a strange book. Why? The book doesn't ring any bells. Why? The book isn't on the shelf. Why? Even the notion that I'm telling this story, hopefully, suggests something is going to happen. The fact that it's surprising to look for a non-existent dream book isn't satisfying on its own but I'd argue that having this revelation brought to us after asking ourselves what's going on is satisfying. It's why we tell stories in this way. We have to be given the chance to expect something, to fully enjoy what is unexpected. So how does this apply to writing a novel or a picture book? Well, one of the commonest mistakes I see in students' work is ignoring the simple truth that these why questions are what make stories interesting, not necessarily the things that happen. It's a bizarre effect of fiction writing that we know how to make stories interesting when we're talking to people, but feel compelled to over-explain and prod and generally bother a reader, to force them to understand what is going on 
at any point in the story. However much they might suggest otherwise, readers don't want to know. They want to be allowed to form their own ideas about what's coming next, even if it means risking a little confusion along the way. Let's look at another example. In Eric Carle's The Very Hungry Caterpillar, we're presented with a caterpillar who feels compelled to eat. Do we think that this story has much of a plot? Well, if we only think about plot as some big, complex structure, with lots of intertwining stories and high points of drama, then perhaps not. But I would suggest that this is a flawed way of looking at what plot really is. Let's think of the story in more detail. On each page, this caterpillar eats more and more, and gets bigger and bigger. And while we might be able to make some educated guesses about its motivations, we don't know exactly why. As the orgy of Vittles continues, it seems as if things are getting dangerously out of hand. Surely the caterpillar is eating too much. There have to be consequences. Then, to deepen the mystery, just when things have gone as far as possible, the caterpillar disappears into a chrysalis. Is this a good thing? Is it a cosmic punishment for greed? At this point, we're ready to tear the book apart in anticipation. Why? Why has the caterpillar gone into a chrysalis? Well, now it's time for the payoff. Here is the caterpillar you knew turned into a butterfly. Our questions are answered, and the result is, I'm sure you'll agree, pleasantly surprising. It might seem like a flippant example, but if you gave this story a prologue in which you say, caterpillars regularly turn into butterflies, and then proceeded to add things like, the energy from this food will help me with my metamorphosis, thought the caterpillar, on subsequent pages, or even had the caterpillar stare longingly at a butterfly passing overhead. We've tipped our hand too much. It's not interesting to know what's going to happen before we get there. Well, what about foreshadowing? It's a good question, but if you're thinking clearly about these examples, you'll see that they're full of clues that something is up. They're just not going to take pains to tell us what that might be, which is what good foreshadowing should try to achieve. In fact, foreshadowing isn't really separate to this idea of plot. It's just something that happens naturally if you're paying attention to the idea of creating why questions. Ronald Tobias has written an excellent book called 20 Master Plots, which explores this in more detail. So if you find these ideas interesting, it's definitely worth checking out. But essentially, we can say that plot is any time the reader asks the question, why? While we're talking about plot, it might make sense to include a famous assertion from E.M. Forster that goes something like this. The king died, and the queen died, is not a plot. The king died, and the queen died of grief, 
is a plot. What does this suggest about the way we tell stories? Well, it might be saying that we want some emotion in there, or that we don't want stories to feel like a report, but essentially it's coming back to this idea of why questions. Why questions are about causation. Why did this person do this thing? Why is this castle haunted? We like to be encouraged to wonder about the things that led to an event, and to be given some time to ponder on it, before we are given more context. In talking about these things, we're building a sense of something which can be a bit daunting to accept. The plot, in small terms, isn't about a series of steps you can follow to make your story workable, and it isn't something you can toss into a story or bring out later by chopping and changing a few words. It's in the DNA of the scenes themselves. They have to set up these questions, and you have to give little payoffs on those questions as the story moves along. I like to talk about this idea of the small-scale plot first, before getting into the macro structure of stories, because that's where your writing gets exciting. When you start seeing why questions in the chapters of the books you read, and become aware of creating them in your scenes, good things happen. So don't be afraid of the concept. Embrace it, and start putting it to work. An exercise I often use to get people focused on this idea is to write a third-person scene where a character receives an important message. It can be a phone call, a letter, a messenger pigeon, whatever you prefer. Describe how the character reacts to the message, their body language, how they interact with other people, what they do immediately upon receiving the information, but, crucially, describe all this without telling us anything about the substance of the message itself. Leave the reader guessing as to what's really going on. Give them clues, but make them an outside observer, and don't include a payoff, even if you know what the payoff will be. If you can write that scene and make it interesting, you can apply the same technique to any scene. Which is good, because whether subtle or not, every scene needs it. I will talk a lot more about the big picture of plotting another time, but as one final point, just consider how the why questions get more imperative as the plot progresses. The caterpillar gets bigger and bigger, the stakes get higher. The mystery which sustains the first part of our story starts to demand some answers. There is an instinctive structure to stories which demands that the consequences and the questions get bigger. My second question for this week is, can you make money as a writer? I'm already regretting choosing this as a topic, 
uh, because it's a bit more personal and a bit less theoretical than talking about The Hungry Caterpillar, and because I don't often hear other authors talking about it, but I suppose that's why it's useful to share. When I was ten years old, a boy asked me to write a Valentine's card for his girlfriend. Apparently he felt it was too challenging. I was a nice kid, so I agreed, but I also wasn't stupid, so I asked him to give me some of his pocket money and pogs. If you're too young to know what pogs are, they're a currency made of cardboard, which cleverly converts real money into something useless for children. Anyway, I got my pogs, he got the card, and his girlfriend was happy. Later that day, some other guys asked me to write messages for girls they liked. I thought this was great. More money, more pogs. This is the point at school events when, as teachers are wondering where this unfortunate story is going, I ask the children whether this seems like a good way to make money. Usually the response is emphatically yes, with perhaps one or two children shaking their heads. Why do you think it's a bad idea, I asked? Because they'll find out you're the one writing them all, and they'll be angry with you. Well, they're not wrong. It might have been a bad choice, but I don't think the instinct to get paid for my efforts was entirely unreasonable. The truth is, as I think this story shows, I've always approached writing as a way to make money. I love writing, I would do it as a hobby, but I don't see why it's so shameful to say you want to be rewarded for it. There is a lot of snobbery around writing for money, often perpetuated by writers. As an undergrad, despite not having any experience in publishing, I would have scoffed at the idea of ghostwriting or even writing in a genre which I didn't regard as literary enough. Writers in higher education spend a lot of time making fun of the line-by-line embarrassments of popular fiction, while most of them, secretly, would have no idea what to do if presented with the task of actually writing a novel, at least in a way which doesn't make readers feel sick with boredom. Luckily, I had a strange parallel apprenticeship taking place while studying at university. I started to pay my bills by writing online articles for marketing companies. Back then, if you were prolific enough, you could make a reasonable living from it. Sometimes this meant writing 10,000 words a day about holiday destinations I'd never been to, or writing how-to guides around issues which the companies paying me didn't seem confident in explaining, or, worst of all, writing those clickbait articles in the tone of 10 things your girlfriend isn't telling you about sharks. It wasn't great writing. I'm afraid my work still poisons the well of holiday articles to this day, and that the phrase vibrant nightlife has lost all meaning to me but that simple mechanism of writing in order to live was useful. It gave me the discipline to write all day, and it made me open to taking on other work, including ghostwriting, writing children's textbooks, 
and helping with film and TV pitches. Each of these areas might not have been the literary fiction I was so enthralled by as a student, but it taught me things about the craft, things I would never have learnt if I'd sat staring at the wall, thinking of how pure and great my writing would be one day. It kept a roof over my head, and, crucially, it made me comfortable having a go at writing children's fiction, which ended up being the thing that paid off for me, and ultimately showed me the kind of writing I most enjoy. One of the few bits of biology A-level I remember clearly is the idea that when some insects don't know what to do, they move faster and turn more frequently, because even without a plan, this has more potential to lead them somewhere good. I think the same is true when it comes to throwing yourself into writing. Try new stuff all the time, and try it seriously. Put the hours in, work hard, edit, improve. Go where the money takes you if it means you get the chance to work on your craft, and do your best in all your endeavours, not just the ones you think have been handed to you directly by the muses. As Ralph Waldo Emerson put it, A man is relieved and gay when he has put his heart into his work and done his best. But what he has said or done otherwise shall give him no peace. It is a deliverance which does not deliver. In the attempt, his genius deserts him. No muse befriends. No invention. No hope. It might not mean anything to you, but if you write a load of trash with the best of intentions, and keep trying, and keep getting better, I have a lot more respect for you than for someone who is eager to criticise others' writing, while never having dared to attempt it themselves. In the insect analogy, being a snob just means sitting still. Where does all this talk of work leave me today? Well, I don't make a living exclusively from my books, I teach and consult and do any honest job which interests me, and I think it's still doing me good in the same way as all those other jobs did back when I was a student. But this doesn't mean you shouldn't try or expect to make money from your writing. Don't let people who are already wealthy or can afford to be complacent about their futures take up all the spaces. It's about figuring out a way of making writing pay for you. Just maybe don't do it by writing other people's Valentine's messages. That's it for this time. All elements of this podcast were created by me, A.P. Winter. If you found it useful, please say nice things about it wherever you find it. Any questions, you can reach me through Twitter at A.P. Winter and through my website, apwinterauthor.com. Special thanks go to Ronald Tobias for his ideas in the brilliant book, 20 Master Plots, to Eric Carls, The Very Hungry Caterpillar, for continuing to be so intellectually provocative, and to the many people who've given me writing work over the years. It's good to know that any writing I do now is partly your fault, too. 
There's a lot more to discuss about plot in future installments. I hope you'll join me then.